0: And this is normal. This is how in the immune system works, is that you educate it to recognize a pathogen. And when the pathogen is not there to challenge you, that immunity sort of decays over time and, and, and sets itself in your immunological memory, ready to pop up again.
1: This is Culture at a Crossroads with David Mann. With me from the University of Ottawa, we have Marc-Andre Langois, also the Executive Director of the Coronavirus Variants Rapid Response Network, Lots of responsibility. Mark andre you've been uh, delving into this stuff for, for a while, almost two decades. How has COVID-19 affected the way that you think about your work?
0: Well, it is the, the first time that in my career we are dealing with a, a pandemic. We've heard about previous pandemics, and this is actually the first time we're living through one. So what this has done is to basically put all of our previous research into context. And to actively pivot what we were doing before for other viruses. In my case, I was studying HIV and was to look closely at the tools we were developing for HIV and and the um, immune components that we were studying for HIV and adapt these methods and um, methodologies to study this new pandemic virus, which is uh, SARS CoV 2. So it's a, it's, it has been really a transition of our previous research to this new virus to quickly understand the the, the risks of this new virus and the consequences of the infection.
1: This rapid response network, how did that come to fruition? So this
0: was born from the need of the federal government to get Canadian researchers together to provide rapid information on the risk of new variants. So there was an open uh, competition for funding, we applied for the funding, we uh, built our team. This is a multidisciplinary team, so uh, we are not just virologists, there are mathematicians, there are uh, epidemiologists, uh, infectious disease clinicians, molecular biologists, virologists, it is extremely multidisciplinary. And we brought all these people together because you need all these different fields of expertise to understand what is happening during the pandemic. So COVARNET brings together these researchers and together we can rapidly study the emergence of new variants and uh, the risk posed by these variants to the Canadian population that has been either vaccinated or previously infected by um, another variant. So we provide that sort of information to, um, to decision makers to understand the risk posed by new variants.
1: As it seems, some of these variants have become uh, lesser in severity, but at times uh, more exposed, easier to, to get. Let's kind of sink our teeth into this dichotomy that you mentioned before we went on air here. People are, are raising concern about the long-term effects of getting the vaccine. But you uh, clarified to me that there's probably more of a concern of uh, the long-term effects of being infected by the virus. But does that change at all? Like if someone got the Delta versus the Omicron that seemed lesser in severity should they also still be you know flagging that because there could be some serious ramifications
0: so we cannot expect that all future variants be as virulent as omicron which was slightly milder than than delta we simply don't know what is coming next the virus is mutating in the population Um, And these mutations uh, allow the virus to acquire new features. Some of these features will enable the virus to be more transmissible. Some of these features might make people more sick. We don't know what is coming next. But uh, certainly a successful virus is one that will be able to propagate in the vaccinated population and in the population that's been previously infected. Otherwise, the virus will disappear. And we know that at this stage, the virus is nowhere close to disappearing. It is uh, still navigating through uh, the the vaccinated population quite efficiently. And we're seeing this with Omicron right now. And therefore, we do not know what is coming next uh, in regards to to SARS-CoV-2.
1: Several questions that your team and you have different departments at the Rapid Response Network are are hoping to answer, and and some of these you can't necessarily speak to uh, just yet, but really fascinating line of question I think the public are, are, are grappling with as well. And that, you know, one of them would be, you know, are people with certain characteristics more uh, susceptible to these breakthrough infections? What would be your hypothesis at this point of your research?
0: Well, we, we know the answer is yes. Some individuals are more susceptible to infection, are more susceptible to severe disease. We know that more elderly individuals do not mount the same intensity of an immune response to the vaccines. This is why uh, elderly individuals uh, need the normal course of the vaccine and need boosters, is to be able to maintain a comparable level of immunity to the general population. So age is definitely a predisposition factor. Then there are what we call comorbidities. Does someone have kidney disease? Does someone is someone immunocompromised? Are they taking drugs uh, for various diseases, uh, lupus, arthritis? Are they undergoing chemotherapy? So these are all conditions that will affect the uh, immune response to vaccines and also to to infection acquired immunity. So when the virus naturally infects you. So given this, this uh, large disparity in the population, yes, uh, different individuals will be affected differently to a, a, a new variant, mainly because their, their immune system and their immune responses are all slightly different depending on their condition, their age, their genetics. We know that there are genetic components that, uh, that will modulate susceptibility. So so these are all conditions that are out there that we're still studying, trying to understand which ones of these conditions uh, pose the greatest risk to, to, uh, to Canadians.
1: What do you think of the role of the vaccine going forward? You mentioned boosters needed for the elderly population, but as we see from a public health standpoint, vaccine passports being dropped and still sort of the uncertainty of other variants that may come down the line, do you think that vaccines will be something that that your network will be advocating for in the future still?
0: So vaccines are one tool in the toolbox and the current vaccines are one type of vaccine. So if we're focusing on the mRNA vaccines, these are intramuscular vaccines that are mainly designed to prevent severe disease. They do reduce transmission of the virus to a certain degree for a certain amount of time because it's linked to the antibody response, the neutralizing antibody response that decays over time. So these vaccines are one type of the tools required to control this pandemic. Now, moving forward, what we need to to make this virus go endemic are other tools that include antiviral drugs, We need additional antiviral drugs so that uh, when you do get infected, you can start immediately taking drugs to reduce the severity of the disease, the length of uh, how long you're going to be sick. Uh, That is uh, very important. And we also need to uh, develop different types of uh, vaccine boosters that really focus on reducing transmission. Here we're talking about mucosal vaccines. So these are vaccines such as um, uh, intranasal vaccines. So these are vaccines that specifically stimulate your immune system at the point of entry of the virus. So we know that SARS-CoV-2 is a respiratory virus. You inhale it through your nose, through your mouth. And these are the first cells that get infected, are, are the cells of your upper respiratory tract. Now, what we want is vaccines or boosters that will stimulate immune responses in those areas. So that if you do inhale the virus, the virus will not attach to its target, will not cause that initial infection, will just get neutralized. So this will require the development of a different type of technology, vaccine technology than the uh, current mRNA vaccines that are really focused on uh, reducing severe disease and also protecting the lower respiratory tract.
1: And where are we at with some of these developments? Uh, Like, Does the the fact that we've been in this crisis, in this pandemic, has it forced you know, things to get sped up in, in all these developments?
0: No, absolutely. There's, there's tremendous investment by the Canadian government, other governments of other countries, for the development of new antiviral drugs directed against uh, SARS-CoV-2 and other coronaviruses, and also the development of uh, new vaccine technologies that will help limit the, the, the transmission. Here in Canada, there are, there are several research groups at different universities Thinking in the University of Toronto, the McMaster University, uh, even uh, Ottawa U, where there are research groups that are developing intranasal vaccines that will uh, help reduce the transmission of the virus, and and this is really what we want is to have a multi pronged approach to the uh, to the virus to reduce the, um, the severity of the disease and also reduce the transmission.
1: Mark Andre, do you foresee any? struggle for public health to promote getting further vaccine now? Because with so many provinces dropping vaccine mandates and masks coming off, a lot of people have the perception that this pandemic will be done. You know, how do you think these tools will actually be implemented by Canadians?
0: No, that that is a very, very important question is that there is um, generalized pandemic fatigue at this stage. The general population is uh, fed up hearing about this virus. They are large number of Canadians that are received two vaccines or three vaccines and feel that their job is done. However, what we have to be mindful of is that the protection against transmission uh, and the immune responses decays over time. And this is normal. This is how the immune system works is that you educate it to recognize a pathogen. And when the pathogen is not there to challenge you, that immunity sort of decays over time and, and, and sets itself in your immunological memory ready to pop up again. However, if a very virulent variant comes around, a variant that causes severe disease, you want your immune system to be able to kick in immediately. And, and therefore, you will need to maintain a certain level of immunity against this variant until these other tools that I mentioned of, about uh, the antivirals, intranasal uh, vaccines are, are developed. So, what we do need is to maintain this uh, high level of immunity, mainly because, you know, we don't want to be continuously sick. There's the possibility of getting reinfected with variants uh, as time goes by. And it's extremely unpleasant to to be uh, locked in your home sick for for two weeks, three weeks, four weeks because of an infection, and then you're infecting your family. And it creates this uh, additional hardships on, on families and individuals to be reinfected with this virus. So overall, it it is highly desirable to maintain high immunity to avoid these reinfections that are poised to happen in the coming months as our vaccine immunity starts decaying.
1: I mean, we kind of danced around this a little bit, but just for the the naysayers, what negative effects do you think, if any, will come from taking these vaccines?
0: Well, uh, I I, I think that is a false... um, a false narrative because there's no expectation of long-term consequences from these vaccines. So let, let's put things into context. So the mRNA vaccines uh, induce the production of a single viral protein. We, we heard about this protein a lot. It's the viral spike. It's a protein on the surface of the virus that allows the virus to attach to its target cells in your respiratory tract, enter the cells and cause the infection. So the mRNA vaccines induce the, the expression of this protein to educate your, your immune system. Now, the virus has the spike and it has 28 other viral proteins. We don't know what these other viral proteins are doing to you. And what we do know is that we are seeing long-term consequences from an infection by this virus. We are not seeing the same long-term Uh, consequences or symptoms in those that have been vaccinated. So the narrative should be, you know, what are the consequences of being infected with a virus? What will this infection do to me in the long term? And we are seeing large numbers of individuals that have chronic fatigue, um, that have uh, brain fog, that have uh, muscular problems, digestive problems that are linked To the infection by this virus. We are not seeing this in individuals that have been vaccinated. So uh, the greatest risk here is actually being infected with the virus, and that's why we should limit the transmission of this virus. Do
1: you think that's the biggest misconception right now?
0: Absolutely. There is no expectation and there's no evidence whatsoever that these vaccines will cause long-term symptoms or side effects. There's no evidence of this however there is evidence that infection with the virus might do that so uh, that's what i think the general public should be worried about and focus on is really to limit the, the spread of this virus
1: the creation of the vaccine itself is is quite fascinating you think about all the the minds that that pooled their knowledge together to expedite this just for the time of the pandemic and I mean, I'm I'm a person of faith and a lot of my listeners of this are people of faith and, and some have drummed it up to be a miracle. From your scientific perspective, as someone who is, you know, just sunk into all of this information for a lot of your career, uh, would you uh, go as far as calling the, the, the development of the vaccine to be a miracle?
0: No, I, I, I would not. These vaccines did not simply emerge for this uh, for this virus. Um, the knowledge did not spontaneously emerge, you know, for this pandemic. These vaccines have been in development for decades at different stages. So the knowledge that has been acquired to tackle this virus, as much as, you know, the development of the mRNA vaccines, and there are other types of vaccines as well that were developed, all of this development was, was based on the foundation of decades of research of hard work, it's incremental scientific advances, small advances every year on understanding how to express a viral protein in cells, for example, to educate the immune system. How to uh, deliver mRNA to cells using these with these nano uh, these nanoparticles that were that are in a part of the uh, the mRNA vaccines. So all of this th- is really the result of you know, a tremendous amount of work over a large number of time by a lot of people. So what this pandemic has done is that it helped converge all of this knowledge uh, into a, a, a final product, which are the uh, mRNA vaccines that we know now or the other uh, adenobase uh, vaccines that have been uh, deployed. So this is really the, the result of a tremendous amount of uh, work and effort by a lot of people.
1: But would there be precedence of something else in the past where such a development has come together on a world stage like this? That's sort of my uh, pretense of of asking if, if this could be equated to something like a miracle, just given how worldwide the impact of the vaccine has had.
0: Well, there's no precedent of, um, of this in uh, recent times. I believe that when it was acknowledged that this virus was uh, highly transmissible uh, and highly virulent that could cause death in healthy individuals, th- there was a, a worldwide consensus that, hey, we have to get together, we have to work together uh, in in limiting the damages caused by this virus. Now, millions of people have died from this virus. Uh, it would have been much, much worse had nothing been done. So there, there, are some critics that say, "Well, it's just like the flu. The flu kills a lot of people every year." Well, um, when there's the flu, we don't shut down airports, uh, we don't shut down restaurants, we don't shut down the whole economy. And had this virus, you know, ripped through the human, the global human population without these measures, uh, we have no idea what the consequences of that would have been. So, the coming together of the scientific community of the general global community has been essential to to limit the damage of of this virus. So this is a very unique situation. Um, And uh, I I think it, it is one that is important because as a virologist, we expect this type of pandemic virus to emerge again in the future. When that will happen, we don't know whether it's in five years, in 20 years, in 50 years. But we do expect this to happen again. So this, uh, this tremendous hardship that we've been through has been a very, very good exercise to understand how to save lives and how to mitigate the spread of something that is deadly. So I, I think there are, there are a lot of lessons that have been learned and also the ability of the global population to come together. And, and that was something that was uh, remarkable uh, during this uh, pandemic.
1: Mm, so interesting. Mark Andre, with uh, so many provinces in Canada dropping mask mandates, I mean, this has been one of those tools you talk about vaccine being a tool. Uh, are you on board with with masks being dropped, and do you also see that there was a big benefit in wearing them? Because, as you mentioned, these are the first cells in, in the nose where you can be exposed.
0: So, this also is a very, very important topic uh, and one that we have to think very closely about. So, there's an Undisputable fact is that masks reduced viral transmission by a lot if both the infected person and the non infected person are wearing masks in the same enclosed environment. We know masks work. Now, with mask mandates being abolished, it will come down to individuals and individual businesses to make the right decisions regarding masks. So what I'm saying here is that the, the issue of masking will become a social responsibility to limit the transmission of this virus. Now, what does this mean? What does this look like? Well, if you're going into a hospital where there's a high number of individuals that are already sick, possibly immunocompromised, well... You do not want to risk bringing in the virus. Sometimes you're asymptomatic. You you're infected with a virus. You don't even know it. You don't want to risk bringing the virus into an environment where you have vulnerable individuals. So, for example, in the hospital, should have a mandatory mask mandate for anyone entering those uh, those spaces. Same with long-term care facilities. I mentioned that elderly individuals don't mount as good an immune response to the vaccine. So they are more likely to get the virus and and become sick. So those types of environments are important. It's important to wear masks to, to protect those vulnerable individuals. Now, individuals in society might also make their own decisions about masks. For example, if you are um, taking public transport and entering a bus that is um, that is packed or, or a train that is packed, there's high likelihood that there will be someone in that train or in that bus that has COVID right now. So you might want to wear a mask to protect yourself so that you're not home for, for weeks sick with COVID and transmitting that virus to your family, to your, to your kids, to your parents. So you might want to make that decision. So it will be a question of social responsibility moving forward, where individuals will have to make a moral decision of saying, well, I'm going to wear a mask. Yes, it's not very comfortable. It's inconvenient. It doesn't look good. But overall, you know, wearing this mask will protect others that are vulnerable and will protect myself because I don't want to be home for another three, four weeks coughing and and sick, right? So this... This component of protecting, uh, limiting transmission is critical at this stage where I mentioned we don't yet have broad access to antivirals and we don't have broad access to the next generation of uh, intranasal vaccines to limit transmission. There will become a time in the future, in the near future hopefully, where we will have these antivirals, we will have these intranasal sprays that will, will protect us. And this overall toolbox will enable the population to say, well, maybe now I don't need a, a mask going into a, a highly uh, dense public space because if I do fall sick, I can take an antiviral and, and I, 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 or I can take a nasal spray vaccine and basically will limit the spread of the virus and, and the damage caused by the virus. But at this very stage of the pandemic, masks are an essential tool to limit the spread uh, of the virus to vulnerable people and also to, your, to yourself that you, know, you don't want to be wiped out for a number of weeks.
1: Well, a somewhat hopeful note to end on. Mark Andre, really appreciate you taking this time and all the work you're doing at the Rapid Response Network. It's admirable and uh, we need it still. So thank you. Well, thanks for having me uh, on your show. And if you want to find out anything more about the Coronavirus Variants Rapid Response Network and any of the work of Mark andre they've published a lot of interesting findings, you can head to davidmanmedia.com slash podcast. Next time on Culture at the Crossroads. As we get closer to Easter, we'll discuss its relevance with Christian scholar and professor at Crandall University in Moncton, John Stackhouse. We'll consider why we can believe in Jesus in light of the resurrection and what this means for Christians and non-Christians across the country. For Culture at a Crossroads, I'm David Mann. Thanks for joining us today, and we do invite you back next week as we once again explore the intersection of faith and culture in Canada, helping to better equip you in following Jesus.